0: Hello everyone and welcome to an episode of Compliance Hero. We are a podcast for the financial services compliance industry and today my guest is Mike Little who is the Chief Compliance Officer of PNC Bank in Pittsburgh. And Mike, I think you guys are like over 200 billion in assets now, are you not?
1: Yeah, that's correct. We're about $268 uh, okay. billion. So right.
0: you're a big bank. You're in the top, at least the top 20 or uh, not yeah. 15 in the U.S. Yeah, yeah.
1: I would say top 10, right?
0: Okay. One of the things that seems to be going on out there in the compliance world, Mike, you can tell me if you think I'm wrong, but I think there's a big realignment going on between the first and second line. I think that there's a lot of uh, spending fatigue out there with senior managements and banks across the country on the compliance function because we've been spending like crazy for the last 10 years, and so now there's an effort to try to make compliance more efficient between the first line and the second line of defense. So one of the things I know you guys have done is, is do a little bit of that realignment, and I wanted to ask you, what are the five things that should be considered by compliance when you're realigning your responsibilities with the first line of defense?
1: Just to give you a little background, I think that when we went down this path, of realigning our program, it was really about becoming more effective. And I think as a result, we're also becoming more efficient. And there's really five things that we focused on. The first was governance, making sure that we had the appropriate governance processes in place, not only across sort of the lines of defense, but all the way up to our executive committee as well as uh, the board of directors. Uh, We also focused on roles and responsibilities making sure that we had clear understanding of what each group, whether you were a business person, a compliance person, or an audit person, what were your responsibilities, how would you execute against them?
0: Could I go back to your governance before you you go any further there? How did you change the governance between the way it was before and the new way?
1: Sure. So I I think the couple changes that we've made was we – we looked at the composition on all of the management committees and we made sure that we had the appropriate risk management representation in those meetings, not only from a business perspective, but from a risk perspective and when I that
0: closer governance than before where you had a risk committee separate from the business committees.
1: Yeah. So, so I think that uh, we still have, um, you know, so within our organization we have committees within the businesses, which we have, compliance representatives on. We have risk committees where we have first line of defense people on. And then as you go to the board, I think this was the big change, and that was we had a board risk committee, and so all risks got reported into that. Given that compliance plays such a critical role in how we deliver our products and services to our customers, we felt it was really important to carve that out. So we have a separate compliance subcommittee of the board that essentially just focuses on compliance. I think that that move, I think, was a real positive because it really sort of
0: highlighted the importance of compliance to our organization. Mm. That's great. And then the second one you said are roles and responsibilities. Was that less well-defined before? Yeah, I think that it was a
1: little, you know, it was a little kludgy. Um, I I think as, you know, everyone, as as heightened standards came out and people were talking about the first, I think everyone was sort of struggling to figure out how that was. But I think everyone, I think a lot of groups and organizations and even ourselves were trying to do it, you know, in silos. And so what we really did was we put a plan together where we were going to get the first and the second line, and we had help from the third line as, as well, and we really sort of laid out what we felt those roles and responsibilities were across those three lines of defense. We created racy documents associated with them uh-huh. and then began to socialize them. I and that will be part of, and, and we will continue to do that. We will update those on an ongoing basis. And I think what's really good about it is, is that once you have sort of that standard or baseline, you know, it gives you a better opportunity to make changes and adjustments, you know, based on the changing needs of the, of the organization. And the other component of it was is we wanted to make sure that when it came to heightened standards, as well as the three lines of defense that we were making it our own,
0: and I know that you donated some of your people to the first That's line, right? Right. right.
1: <laughs> I, I think that that was that, that was probably the hardest part for me, right? Because I, you know, a lot of people who you know had worked with for years, um, we felt that in order to start moving from sort of the tactical into more of changing sort of the culture of the organization particularly when it relates to our first line partners it was all about sort of moving the right people in there so um uh you know really sort of move some of our best people if not the best people you know into the you know into the first line and um you know and, and obviously then we had to find replacements for them but uh, it's um you know i think it was a good start because I think, you know, putting them in there, they understand sort of the compliance requirements. And I think that they're really doing a good job of ingraining them into how we do business in the first line. So
0: That's I, great. That's very, uh, very responsible of you. I know a lot of people would hate to give up their best people. That's was, probably a good, good, uh, good cause.
1: It was not easy, but I think we, we have seen the benefits
0: of it so we've had governance and roles and responsibilities what's the third thing
1: the next thing for us was really making sure that we had an appropriate sort of training program and development program in in place not only to make sure that we're keeping up with trends in the industry but also to position our you know our, our staff our employees for more opportunities within the organization so we went at it from really two angles there was you know let's let's do this so that we you know promote greater employee engagement across mm-hmm. the organization and then more importantly that we are keeping our people up to date on the emerging issues that are out there so we've partnered with the ABA um, and so we, we we've put together you know a whole curriculum um, with our HR group, we have a group called PNC University. They built uh, training programs for us. So, you know, now we have this suite uh, of, of training for both first, second, and third line. Um, every year we're discussing that with our with our staff, and the, the staff is working with their managers to determine sort of what they think is critical. You know, we've set a minimum standard uh, of 40 hours of training for, for everyone. Um, and, you know, not only that do, does it help you from a skills perspective, but, boy, the, the employee engagement component of it is tough to measure, but it is certainly a big plus.
0: Right. Well, you guys have an excellent training resource with PNC University. I know I've seen some of the things that they're doing, and everybody wants a career path. So if somebody thinks they're being shunted over into a part of the bank where there's no no upward mobility, then that's going to be a problem keeping your staff and retaining your best people. Right. So that's a very important piece, I think. What's the fourth thing?
1: I think the, the, the fourth thing, and it's probably, probably should have started with that because it's probably for me, it's, okay. it's really the, the most important one is that coming up with a common framework that enables us to lay out our processes, our operational processes, across the organization in a consistent manner. We had a lot of different groups doing process mapping and doing RCSAs differently. And we really rallied behind a lot of the good work our operational risk folks were doing in in creating an operational risk framework that included risk control self-assessments and sort of having one point of view versus multiple. So, we've leveraged that, and now what we're doing is, is we're taking all of our regulatory obligations, we're mapping them into that RCSA framework, and we're identifying risk events and risk drivers and controls associated with, with each of them. And I think from that perspective, when I, as I look at that, and we're doing it the same across the lines of business, and as I look at that, I think that's going to put us into a better position to capture the impact of change that occurs in processes and procedures across the organization, which we probably didn't have before because we had sort of these disparate processes. So I'm I'm really excited about that because a lot of those operational failures result in compliance risk. Right. And so now we'll be able to go in and say, hey, we're making a change to one of our deposit processes, right? We can look at that process and determine what all of the compliance obligations are associated with it. And then we'll be able to do pre-testing as well as post-testing on any changes that would would go out. So um, we are excited about it. It's really in the infancy, but uh, I think it's going to pay big dividends for us going forward.
0: I'll say, do you have a common library of controls there too?
1: So we do. Right? And that is managed by that operational risk framework. So, um, you know, it's...
0: One thing I should have told the listeners at the beginning, Mike, is that Mike is a lawyer by training. He has functioned as the head of audit and the head of operational risk. So unlike a lot of CCOs out there, and nothing against CCOs that don't have that broad of a background, but he comes with this much broader view than just this one little risk discipline, you, uh, you've seen a lot of different risk areas, and you know what their needs are, and you know what motivates them, what's audit looking for, what's ops risk looking for. So that's one of the weaknesses I see in large institutions is that all the different areas want to keep their turf, so they all pick a different risk technology platform and everyone's operating without the same taxonomy and the same uh, libraries. And as you say, their methodologies are quite different. So kudos there. That's a great step forward. I think
1: if you have, you know, sort of five sticks out on the table, it's easy to break each one of them, but you put those five together and try to break it. It's really difficult.
0: I love that. Okay. So recap here, governance, roles and responsibilities. Training and development, common risk platform. What's the fifth one?
1: So the the next one has to do with testing and monitoring and making sure that we had well-defined programs for the first as well as the the second line. And, you know, one of the things that we did, which is somewhat unique, uh, is, is that we created a testing utility. And that testing utility tests not only sort of compliance risk for the second line, but also does testing for the first line as well. Those groups report separately, have separate leaders, but you know, ultimately are reporting up to risk. Once again, I think that the benefits there is, is that we have a playbook that lays out what a appropriate sample is, which lays out uh, you know, appropriate testing Approaches. Um, we also have sort of leveraged that to sort of identify opportunities where we can maybe automate sort of testing when you're sort of looking at things and, you know, before we had over 30 testing groups. And I think as we consolidated and we're trying to sort of take the best of each, and when you start seeing all of the things that have been done, you know, not only do I think we, we weren't as effective as we could be, but we certainly weren't as efficient. So. By having, once again, a common platform for doing our testing, which is really makes it easier to understand, I think it will also help us as we go forward and look to automate some of those tests. Because if you think about it, compliance is, is just, a, it's just a great opportunity to automate because a lot of the rules and regulations are pretty linear. That's you know, right. they almost sort of fit into a mathematical equation. And so translating that into, you know, since they are sort of like algorithms, translating those algorithms into testing and testing scripts, I think will help us all in the long run. So, um, you know. You no, know,
0: I had a compliance person tell me recently, another CCO, that by looking at anomalies in the data, they were able to actually find more issues than with sample testing.
1: Oh, absolutely, absolutely, right. I mean, anytime you have an anomaly, you have to sort of look and say, well, I didn't expect that outcome, right? So, what's driving that outcome, and is and is it a, the appropriate?
0: Right. Well, this was great information, and I think just doing testing the way you're talking about it is such an efficiency move in and of itself, not to mention just a reasonable way to go with something rather than have a bunch of different processes all over the place. So that was great. Well, thank you so much, Mike, for being on the oh, you're podcast welcome. today. you welcome. Really it was a lot of fun. It. Thank you. Thank you, all you compliance heroes, and we will see you next time.